Hello and welcome to The Premise. Bienvenidos, mi amigos. I'm Jennifer Thompson. And I'm Chad Thompson. And this is, what, season three? Season three. Wow. We are in season three of getting to the story behind the storyteller. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we do. That's what we do here on The Premise. So sit back, relax. Listen. Listen to your eight tracks. I dig you like an old soul record. <laughs> Enjoy a cup of tea, a glass of wine, a shot, you know, whatever. And you do you. You do you. We'll do us. No judgment. We'll do us. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Premise. I'm here with my co-host, Chad Thompson. Hi. Wow. You are ready to go. I am ready. This is an exciting day. Well, not really. Well, I mean, it's an exciting interview. Yes. Yes, because we love Anastasia. Our guest today is Anastasia Zadike. I'm going to read her bio, and then I'm going to kind of go off script a little and tell you, dear listeners, a little bit about this wonderful woman. So Anastasia Zadike is a writer editor, and storyteller. After graduating summa cum laude from Smith College with a degree in psychology, she had an international career in neuropsychological research while raising her three children. Wait, two children. Did I get that right? Two children children. plus a stepchild. Plus, okay, there you go. We have a lot to unpack here, folks. (laughs) She now serves as director of operations for the San Diego Writers Festival and is a board member for the literary nonprofit So Say We All. Anastasia lives in San Diego, where her home network is aptly called Sunny and 70. When she isn't reading or writing, you can find her hiking, biking, swimming, practicing yoga, or hanging out with her husband, Tom, and their empty nest rescue dog, Charlie. I love Charlie. <laughs> Will he join us today with some barking? He might. He's outside, mm. but he oh. might he well. might, you know, chime in here and there. <laughs> we might get a little Charlie <laughs> in our conversation. She is a frequent performer of narrative nonfiction in a hushed bar. And you can check out her videos on her website, which is AnastasiaZadike.com. I'll spell that for you at the end, folks. Her work has appeared in the San Diego Decameron Project, Literary Vine Review, and the award-winning anthology, Shaking the Tree, short brazen memoir. Blurred Fates is her first novel. Anastasia, welcome to the premise. Thank you so much for having me. This is a real honor. Oh, I'm so excited. So, okay, I said I'd say a little off script. So Anastasia, as I just said, is our director of operations at the San Diego Writers Festival. And listeners, you know that The premise is, in fact, the official podcast of the San Diego Writers Festival, which is taking place in person. Yes, you heard me right. Taking place in Coronado at the Coronado Public Library on October 8th again. So hopefully you will all join us. Anastasia will be doing some events there as well. And probably are you going to be selling your book at the... At the Writers' Festival? I will be selling my book at the Writers' Festival at the uh, Warwick's Bookstore. Awesome. Oh, my gosh. We are going to have so many amazing books. Yes, we are. I'm excited about that. I'm just so glad you're here that we get to talk about this book. I absolutely loved it. It's a fantastic psychological thriller. Um, There's so much to get into about this book. But, But before we do that, I have one very important question. Okay. What? is the weirdest job you've ever had? Oh my gosh, that I can answer that immediately. I only had this job for about 
25 minutes, probably. 25 minutes. Uh-huh, 25 minutes, probably mm. one of the shortest jobs ever. My mother <laughs> found it for me. I was a, um, it was between my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college. And I had to pay for part of my college. And so I had three summer jobs. Um, but before I got all three of them lined up, my mom was helping, you know, look through the jobs. This was back before, you know, LinkedIn or anything like that. You found (laughs) your job in the paper. Like it was, you know, help wanted. Um, and I I, I woke up one morning and I came down and she said, I have an interview for you. I called and pretended I was you and you have an interview at noon for this job. It's it's a hostess job. And I was like, this is fantastic. So um, she said, you know, they want you to dress nicely and wear high heels. I was like, okay. So it was at a, this one of these, this was back in the, you know, 80s. And so where was this? Was this this was in near Mount Prospect, Illinois, where I grew up. Okay. Okay. And the restaurant where I was going to be a hostess is one of these steak places where businessmen in the olden days used to go and have a couple martinis at lunch and eat steak. And it was like they would have two hour lunches. And this was one of those places. It was a businessman's lunch place. So I showed up for my. Of um, course, you had to wear high heels. Interview, yeah, in my high heels and, <laughs> to serve steaks and 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 there's a, a woman there at the at the hostess stand and I'm like, wait a minute, I thought that that's what I was interviewing for and she said, yeah, well this is so she brings me back behind the hostess stand. There's this walk-in closet and she brings me back and she explains that I'm going to be a lingerie model. Oh my god. And, <laughs> She explains that I put on the eye, I put on the a piece, choose any of the lingerie that's on the rack, and then I just walk around to the tables and you know make nice conversation with the guests, make them feel comfortable, and then make every, them feel yeah make them feel comfortable, <laughs> and after afterwards, if I sell the lingerie, then I go I come back to the room. I write it down on the back of the door. I wrap up the lingerie and some tissue paper and deliver it to the table in mm. another piece of lingerie. Mm. See, and that then I get a commission. That is business model ever. Ever. So I get a commission for every piece of lingerie. So now I was one of those people who were like, you know, it never would have occurred to me. I was, you know, 18, never would have occurred to me to say, I can't do that. So I look <laughs> at this, this rack of lingerie and there happened to be this purple velour sweatsuit at the end. (laughs) So I put on the purple velour sweatsuit and I made my trip around the tables chatting, making the guests feel comfortable in my high heels and a sweatsuit, which trust me, is not easy to do. Got back to the dressing room, sold it twice. I sold the sweatsuit twice. Nice work. And once for myself and he said, but one of the guests said, I'll buy it twice, once for my girlfriend and once for you, if you promise to wear something more revealing on the next pass around. So I walked back into the little closet and I said to the woman there, I said, "Um, I'm sorry, I just can't do this. (laughs) (laughs) And I realized that it's possible to feel entirely exposed in a Mm. tracksuit. But I also realized like, you know, there was like three or four other women there doing this. This was their job. And I was, it was like a whole world that I had never imagined existed. Um, So yeah, that was my shortest lived job. I I did not get paid for the sweatsuit. Oh, 
But and you sold one. I know. I, did, I, made, you... I made nothing. I just walked out and <laughs> I went home and I said to my mom, so this is what it was. My mom's like, oh, honey, I never would have sent you there. Who would have thought? And I was like, right, and she right. said, but maybe that's why they asked for your measurements and how tall you were. And I was like, mom. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> I mean, mom. So that's awesome. anyway, that was my most unusual job for sure. So it wasn't even an interview. You just had to show up and start work. Show up and start work right that day. I mean, mm. it was, it, the pay was good. I think it was, you know, back in the day, I think back then, like the hourly wage might've been $2, $3 an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think this was like $18 an hour, but. Oh, wow. You know, yeah, that's some good money. Yeah, but you I had mean, to be willing to, you know. Wear lingerie. And, mm. and yeah, and walk around while men were eating steaks and drinking martinis. It was the <laughs> weirdest setting. Oh my God. That is hysterical. Anyway. That is there funny. Well, I guess we So should... is that in your book? No. It's not it's in my fiction. book. It's fiction. It's a psychological it is, it is in my, it is in one of my, um, one of my uh, narrative nonfiction performances is, um, it's in mm. there. It's On called 4AM. It's one of the stories. Yeah. So. <laughs> because <laughs> that wasn't actually the, one of the three jobs I ended up with was as an all-night waitress so at 4 a.m oh, at okay. 4 a.m so I was gonna yeah. ask was that at 4 a.m your mom let you go be a hostess at 4 a.m so what were you doing at 4 a.m you were a server I was an all-night waitress and uh yeah at a, I was a, a night waitress in an all uh, 24-hour restaurant and so how how much of your experience doing odd jobs creeps into your fiction writing? I would say in this book, uh, one of my characters, the, the main character is a, wait- a waitress when she's younger, but there mm. isn't really much about that other than just a brief reference to it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I would say not much, not okay. much. And the, but I just mean in like, book. Yeah, not in, in general, book. like hmm. other books, because I really think that scene should appear in a book. <laughs> I, I will say this, that um, a lot of the neuropsych stuff that I learned when I was working in neuropsych shows up in my books. Um, of course. Because my books have a lot of stuff related to, um, I wouldn't say neuropsych research, which is what I did, which was in, in memory disorders primarily, mm-hmm. but it does have a lot to do with um, neuropsychology of everyday life. Um, and which includes both mental health and mental illness. So, so when you were talking about memory, are you talking about like traumatic memories being blocked or like speak more to what that means? So when I was, when I worked in neuropsych research, I, um, I worked in the field of memory disorders. So it was more with Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, Mm. and what we called at the time age-associated memory impairment. I think they have another name for it now, but that was back in the, again, this was back in the um, 80s and 90s. And, uh, but that's basically the memory loss that you see that's quote unquote normal as you age. Um, Mm. Some of that now we, back then they didn't have a lot of these programs that people now have on their phones for memory improvement, um, you know, games and word games and things like that didn't exist back then the way they do now. Um, but yeah, in, in learning all about how memory works, I became fascinated with that idea of memories being misremembered, I think is one of the like 
coolest mm-hmm. and most confusing parts because people believe that the memories that they've recreated in their head are the real memories. And the more that you re- remember them yeah. that way, the more fixed they become as true memories. Um, but also, you know, just the whole idea that you can lose your memory for a variety of reasons. People lose their memory, as in this book, because they drink too much. Yeah. People lose their memories because of, of a traumatic event that can be a head injury, but it can also just be so traumatic from a psychological standpoint that we, as a self-protective mechanism, we won't allow ourselves to remember something. Um, Like subconsciously, yeah. Subconsciously, we block it. So, yeah. Well, So that's the book. I was just going to say, so in Blurred Fates, there is, um, there's a couple things happening um, along those lines where one of our main characters doesn't remember something that really affects the course of their lives moving forward. And I wanted to speak to, was that the kernel? I mean, well, first of all, let's take a step back. Tell us what Blurred Fates is about. Tell our listeners about a little bit about this book. So Blurred Fates is is a book about a woman who is living a seemingly perfect life in Southern California with her husband and her two children, but she's hiding uh, a, a large part of her life from everyone, including herself to a certain degree, but certainly from her husband who was raised um, in kind of an upper crusty family, very reserved, um, I like that upper crusty family. Yeah, nice. an upper crusty family. <laughs> you know, the kind of family that has a compound. And, right. You know, she's exposed to things like the the use of the word summer as a verb, summering. Um, summering. Yeah. <laughs> so, or yeah, like we will we summer in on the Cape. You know, that's mm-hmm. not something that her family would have ever said. Her, She grew up um, in a very small house with a, an, a parents that had issues of their own. Let's just say her father was an alcoholic and her mother is suffering from bipolar disorder that has not been diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And so she finds ways to kind of escape from that through reading, but reading that is supported by her mother, which is nothing like normal reading for kids. So the book that she um, reads as a kid is The Sound and the Fury. That's her favorite book growing up. Hmm. So she just has sort of a a different kind of upbringing to his, to say the least. And when she meets him, she doesn't want to tell him about her upbringing because she's pretty sure that that will make her an unacceptable spouse candidate. So she withholds, she tells him, you know, that she had a traumatic childhood and he knows that her mother died when she was 11 and he knows that she's estranged from her family and her troubled older brother, but that's about all she tells him. Hmm. And so she has this fear of her brother because he's uh, just, he's a menacing kind of figure uh, as he was the victim of her mother's rage whenever her mother went into a rage. And so he is caring. He has his own demons, but he, as the book says, hurt people, hurt people. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. he seems, he turns a, a lot of his anger on her, on the main character. So she fears his reappearance in her life primarily because she's worried that he will tell her husband about her upbringing and that he will then think she's no longer worthy of the life that he has brought her into. Yeah. Um, and then one night at dinner, which is how the book starts, um, he reveals that he 
has done something. Has done something while, <laughs> while blackout drunk, which is not something that he would normally do at all. He's not a blackout drunk kind of guy. So that part is surprising to her. But also then what he tells her he did starts to bring back some dark memories from her childhood. But she can't explain to him what those are without revealing them. So she becomes trapped by, as I say, trapped by the unspoken. She, mm. she cannot tell him why she's upset, but she's behaving in a way that doesn't make sense to him without understanding her past. Right. So she's sort of in this place where she's either going to potentially lose the life that she's built with him if he knows the truth, or she could lose her mind because she's trying to justify what's going on. Yeah. So, so you know, this, this book... As we said, it's a psychological thriller, um, a real page turner. And you you do this great job of making us think that the menace is over here on the right, but it's it's sneaky. So you're always turning the page, trying to figure out what's going on and what's happening next. And But at its core, it's really about family. It's about love. It's about loss. Um, but how we... How we manage to make it into adulthood when we grow up in such a dysfunctional upbringing as you just told our listeners about and how it affects who we think of ourselves how we think of ourselves Mm -hmm. who are we right as a result Mm -hmm. of this this family and so for kate she has created this beautiful life for herself but i think at her core she doesn't think she deserves it Mm -hmm. that's absolutely right she doesn't think she deserves it and she and and so She's she's absolutely convinced on some level that the the truth is dangerous mm. to her. She's going to um, get found out. She's going to get found out uh-huh. and she's going to lose everything that matters to her. And the truth is, is that she she also uh, one of the things that she's struggling with is that and I have ta- I have there, you know, some books are always based a little bit on your life experiences, not my personal life experience necessarily, but the lives, the experiences of others around me who've sure. shared their, their lives with me. And I have a couple friends who had traumatic childhoods. And one of them once said to me that one of the hardest things about becoming a parent is that she didn't know what it was supposed to look like. Mm. She had no model for it. So she read a lot. She read every parenting book she could find. She got therapy, but she said she also relied on her husband, who she thought had what she considered a normal, whatever normal is, um, upbringing to guide her. And when they got divorced, she felt lost at sea because suddenly Mm -hmm. the person who was going to be her guide in parenting was no longer her partner in this endeavor and she did not know how to do it on her own. Hmm. Um, So I kind of wanted to address that, that she's actually the Kate is a lot stronger than she thinks she is. She's, uh, she's, she's very worthy. She's a very worthy person, Mm -hmm. but she's been convinced through her, you know, all of those formative years that she wasn't. And and those kinds of messages when you're 12, 13, 14, 15 are very powerful. And they stick with you because I think in some cases, because we don't have the intellectual framework to process them at that age. Sure. We just, we're not there yet. Our brains aren't there yet. And so yeah. when we re-experience them as an adult, we experience them with that, that uh, 
12-year-old understanding or lack thereof. Mm, And I don't know if that's making sense, but... No, it totally makes sense. And it kind of brings us back to this topic of memory, like how we remember things. You know, if we're blaming ourselves, we think we're at fault because we're not worthy or we're not good enough or we deserved that bad treatment. Mm -hmm. That's going to bring us into adulthood with those same feelings, no matter how much we try and hide it. Yeah. And I think in addition, she has this fear because no one explained to her why her mother behaved the way she did. Mm. And mm-hmm. she's convinced on some level that she's doomed, that, yeah. her, that her fate is to become her mother or her parents, one of her parents. And so that's partly where the title comes from, mm. is this idea that our fates are never clear. And yeah. sometimes they're blurred by our poor memories. Sometimes they're blurred by life events happening today mm. that bring up some of those emotions and fears. And sometimes they're blurred by the behavior of the people around us who um, we and that we can't control at all. So absolutely. One of the things that I liked in this book, what you did really well, was the internal dialogue of Kate. Kate is our main character. And on the one hand, she's really put together and everyone sees her in such a way that, you know, she's a great mom, she's involved, she's a wonderful wife, she has this beautiful home. It's important to her that, you know, everyone has a wonderful experience in the home and in life. And yet on the inside, her internal dialogue, she is literally falling apart. Mm -hmm. And she's just trying to keep that hidden from the world. Did you... Was that always your plan to write it with that internal dialogue, like taking such a big part of how we experience who Kate is? So I wanted to explore the whole nature nurture thing, but I also wanted to show that what we see on the outside is very rarely what's going on on the inside. Mm -hmm. And that so many times when we meet someone or we see, see someone behaving in a way that we don't understand, that we often will attribute it to something external or we will just be confused or we'll think that that person's, you know, they're, they're messed up, but we don't understand what they're dealing with on the inside. I remember uh, a therapist I once went to years ago who I was describing something that I was convinced I had done wrong Mm -hmm. and it was a social situation. (laughs) And I explained that. And if, if I told you what it was, you would just totally crack up because it was, well, I'll tell you now that I have to, t- I, now I have to tell you. Now you have to tell us, yeah. <laughs> so it was, when you hear this, you're going to go, wow. Um, so it was about snack bags for a field trip for fifth grade. And I had put together these snack bags with grapes and raisins and uh, granola, little granola bars. and Or oh, responsible and, snack bag. Yeah. Right, responsible <laughs> snack bag, right? But I wasn't sure how many grapes and raisins to put in. So I had like a little container of rain, raisins in each one. And, and then I had a, you know, a handful of grapes and then a, a, a bar, snack bar. And when I brought the snack bags to, the, to school in the morning, the other mom that was responsible on the field trip was super gruff when I dropped off the snack bags. And so I had therapy <laughs> later that day and I was like, I just, I really, I can't do anything right. I couldn't even do these snack bags right. And she said, what makes you think that her behavior had anything to do with the snack bags? And I was like, she was super abrupt with me. And she's like, 
Anastasia, you have no idea what she dealt with this morning. Like, yeah. maybe she just found <laughs> out that her mom has cancer, or maybe yeah. she, maybe her son was totally misbehaving in the car on the way there, and she yelled at him, and she's feeling bad. And the next person she sees is you with these bloody snack bags. And, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I had never even... Like, not that I'm that important, but I just immediately attributed it to something I was doing and it was something with these snack bags. And my point is, is that I think we see people and, and when we interact, we assume that they're behaving in a way in a way based on our framework, but we have no idea what's going on inside their heads or mm-hmm. what's went on in their life that day. Mm. And so in this book, I wanted to kind of tell it in first person so that you got Kate's perspective, as messed up as that might be in some cases, you really got to see the world from her eyes. Um, and maybe that will make people more sensitive when they read it and they're, or they experience, uh, have an experience with somebody whose behavior doesn't make sense to them, that they might give them a little piece of grace, knowing that they might be dealing with something internally that they're just not aware of. Awesome. Yeah. So many times, I mean... <laughs> walking through life on any given day, you run into someone that their behavior is just befuddling. And to think of, but if we can just have a little grace, which is well said, and think, hmm, I wonder what that person's going through today, as opposed to react in an angry way or put it on ourselves. I love Or define them that by that, you know, by that Totally, totally. Um, So... So so talk to us about the, the Colonel. Let's get back to the Colonel. Where did you get the idea for this story? So I, I lived in a gated community for a while and I was struck by how beautiful everything was. And um, again, I was thinking about that whole, what you see from the outside and what is really going on. And while in the, the few years that I lived in that area of California, I had some personal life crises going on. My mother was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. Mm. Ironically, mm. after I no longer worked in the field, but knew it all too well. Yeah. <laughs> and at the same time, my stepdaughter, which we brought up earlier when you mentioned the number of children I had, my stepdaughter came to live with me and her mother was, we found out that her mother was dealing with undiagnosed bipolar disorder and substance abuse issues. And my stepdaughter, when she came to live with us, was 15. She was not happy about making this huge life change, moving from Virginia to California, being an only child with her mother to being the oldest of three with two younger brothers and sisters and two parents that were at home and super involved. (laughs) She had had a very independent life for not necessarily the best reasons, but a very independent life in Virginia. And suddenly she was under our thumb. She she was she was at that teenage where she wanted to separate and should be separating. And we were trying to bring her into the fold. So there was a lot of conflict there. Her mom died of a heroin overdose while she lived with us. And at the same time, I was dealing with my mom and my kids, uh, just normal life stuff. And I found that when I shared what was happening in my life, most people around me were dealing with something too. Mm-hmm. And when I was willing to talk about it, it opened a door for them to talk about what they were dealing with. And it occurred to me that this 
beautiful exterior that I saw over and over again in the homes and the people's lives that almost everyone I knew was dealing with something. And so I wanted to write a book about somebody in that position whose Mm. life seems perfect on the outside, but on the inside, everything's falling apart. And don't we judge ourselves against what we see and those around us? And of course, social media only makes it worse. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the kernel for this idea came back 10 years ago. So I actually Mm. had to rewrite whole sections of the book because of technological changes. You know, it's interesting how much things have changed in the last 10 years. Well, that was going to be my question. How long did it take you to write Blurred Fates? So the initial draft um, took me about nine months. And then I got some beta readers and I was in a reader critique group, which helped me immensely. Uh, That's actually how I met Marnie Friedman, our programming director and your co-founder of the San Diego Writers Festival. She was a teacher at UCSD Extension and I met her there and then joined a reading critique group that she was leading. And they helped me kind of process through the first draft, the writing of the first draft. And then after I got it back from the first set of beta readers, I made some edits and I tried to put it out through the traditional publishing means, but I did it badly in the sense that I would send it out to one agent at a time Hmm. and I would wait for them to answer. Painful. (laughs) Painful. And then if they answered in the affirmative, like, yes, please send me the manuscript, I would send it to them and then I would wait. (laughs) And sometimes Mm. that wait was four months, six months before I would do anything else with it. So Mm. it took me about three years to send it to maybe a handful of agents. Um, Three of them asked for the full manuscript, which I think was a pretty good track record, but they all said no in the Mm. end. Mm. And so I put it away and I just, I, I thought it's a first book. It should go in a drawer anyway. So I did that, wrote another book Mm. and then I went to the La Jolla Writers Conference several years ago, um, probably five years ago, maybe. Was I there? You were there. Okay. (laughs) And um, I went to your class. You taught a class on web design, author's web design. I remember it. That had to be more than five years ago. Maybe it was. Maybe it was six years ago. Wow. Okay. Go on. This is so cool. They had a class on finding your voice was one of the panels. And Mm. so I went to this and I remember that the teacher read from Mary Oliver and oh, the beauty (laughs) of you can just, you know, a Mary Oliver poem as soon as you start, you know, as soon as you hear it. And then she asked for people around the table to read from their, from their work. And I was the third person and we were going to assess voice and can you, can you get it right away? Where can we help you to work on strengthening your voice? And so I was the third person to read. And when I finished, I read the first three pages of this book, Blurred Fates. And when I stopped, there was dead silence in the room. And then people started clapping. (laughs) And I was totally floored. And I didn't know what to do. And they're all like, when is it coming out? And I was like, oh, no, no, this lives in a drawer. (laughs) And they all convinced me like, no, 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 you need to pull it back out. So I did. But again, it was sort of a slow work on it here and there. I wasn't really very sure about it. Um, Mm. And and then I was going to start pushing my second book out and trying to get an agent for that. And I decided, you know what, I'm just going to go with 
an all women publisher. I felt really comfortable with that. I went to an all women's college. And so I sent the first manuscript to She Writes Press and they accepted it for publication. And that's how I got on this path. And that was that. And that was that. Yeah. You know, the La Jolla Writers Conference um, is happening in November. I think it's it? the first weekend. Yeah, it'll be in person this year again. Wow. Again, it, I mean, they, I don't think they've even had the conference for two years. because Yeah, of yeah, I don't, think, I don't think so. Isn't it amazing how a writing community can just really help you move forward as a writer? Like without that community, I don't know how, how anyone does it. I totally agree with you. And in fact, it's been, I would say without a doubt that I would not be a writer without my community. It's not that I can't, I wouldn't write, but I wouldn't identify myself as a writer. I have learned so much from the people around me. I have, it's, it's invaluable. And Yeah. We support each other. We also challenge each other. We also, True. you know, yeah. they, my reading critique group, we've become like family, but they, they can tell me when I'm going off the rails, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> no, don't do that. Um, <laughs> so, but also just that we are so lucky to live in such a vibrant community, in my opinion. Um, there's so many resources here and, one of the things I love about working with you and Marnie and and everyone at the festival is making people aware of all of the opportunities that are here in San Diego. That's Absolutely. one of the things that I really respect about you guys in terms of your goal setting was to make it accessible to everyone, but then also to, to make it really welcoming to every mm. organization and mm. to include um, writers of all stripes, poets, lyricists, playwrights. It's not just for authors and it's, yeah, it's very welcoming. So mm, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, storytelling matters. It, it, and you know, your book addresses bipolar and it, and it addresses self-esteem and it addresses like how we see ourselves in the world and how we move forward. And it's, you learn so much from fiction as you would reading, you know, nonfiction, right? We get this, the same benefit, learning mm-hmm. who we are and how to be better humans. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I wanted to do in Blurred Fates, and you know, therapy is such an individual experience, and I, and you can't capture every therapeutic environment, obviously, uh, in a in a book. You can't even capture a small portion of it, but you can you can give. Like in this book, there's actually two therapists. One is Kate's individual therapist, and then there's a family therapist, sorry, a marital therapist that she and her husband go to. And what I was trying to do in including those sessions in the book is to kind of talk about some of the deeper issues that Kate and her husband are dealing with and provide a little bit of scientific background, a little bit of coping mechanism, mm. strategies, that kind of thing, but to, to do it in a non-preachy way, a very approachable way where someone can see someone else going through it and maybe see a little bit of themselves in that and take yeah. something from it that can yeah. be helpful for them. So, Oh, and I think you absolutely accomplished that. Well done. There's this one scene with Dr. Farber and Kate, they're in a mm-hmm. session. 
And Dr. Farber, of course, is very professional and almost placid. Like her, her, she doesn't have expressions that tell you what she's thinking of you, which is, you know, how it should be, right? You don't want to be judged by your therapist. Mm-hmm. And Kate has this internal dialogue happening. And she says to herself, gosh, she, I'm surprised she doesn't use Botox so that she doesn't <laughs> have to have any facial expressions. Like, you know, she's like trying to figure out how to cope with this moment by being almost removing herself from the, what's actually happening, what needs to happen. Yes. And she does, she does recognize, like, yeah, that's actually, I meant that to be somewhat humorous. It totally Um, was. It was funny. (laughs) Yeah. And, and that's the thing when you have a psychological thriller that has such deep, deep, you know, dysfunction, you have to have those moments of humor and humanness because Kate is like, you know, just like anyone, right? Like I would, I might behave the same way, right? I would be thinking those things. So but yeah, I interrupted you. No, that's okay. And she, <laughs> well, as she, and and her relationship. She, so her therapist, doc, uh, Dr. Farber, which ironically, Farber is uh, German. Farber is co- German for color, and I. That's a little play on words. Just my own little internal play on words because of her mother. She always describes her mother's moods by where she is on the rainbow of colors. Mm. Um, that's just a <gasps> that little, is so cool. <laughs> no, it's a little play, um, <laughs> but. Uh, what was I saying? Oh, by, by the end, she's kind of figuring out her relationship with her therapist and understanding the transference and some other things that are going on. She's a well, she's a well-read patient in the sense that she reads a lot of, she has a lot of books as references for her own mm. personal she really library wants to of do mental health, right? Yeah. And, so she's she's kind of trying to she somewhat is doing a little bit of self therapy throughout um, the book as well. But there's other, she also she does a similar thing with the marital therapist when she talks about um, his appearance and that he has a beard and she wonders why why he's got a beard. What is he hiding? Mm. Um, <laughs> so there's some things like that where she's she puts meaning into things that her therapists do. Anyways, mm-hmm. it's, but, again, meant to be funny. <laughs> There and you know and I want our readers and listeners to know that the the book like it's a page turner it's funny it's very human it's very relatable and then there's also that you know that twist at the end that you're like oh I didn't see that coming and by the way I jumped up and screamed when I read it do you remember that Chad no you do I'm going to remind you <laughs> I was we were in different parts of the I, house not to mention you just spoiled the book by saying there's a twist well I can say there's a twist. Ah. This is what you do. You tell people there's you're going to be surprised at the end. Yes. Of course, people look for it, but you know, there's a few twists and there's a few twists and turns. There's more than one, folks. Yeah. There's so more you might think one. that you've gotten to it, but you haven't. Exactly. Wow. There's more to come. There's more corners. So I'm literally reading, and all of a sudden, I'm in the front of the room, and Chad's at the other end of the house, and I jump up. And I don't remember what I yelled, but I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I was like, it's brilliant. And I like jumped up and I ran to the other end of the house to like tell Chad what had just happened. You know, because I don't know if you know this, listeners, but Chad and I are married. We're not just co-hosts. So as I'm reading, he gets the benefit or <laughs> in his case. I'm like, benefit? Maybe it's not a benefit <laughs> of me telling him everything that's happening in whatever book I'm reading. I'm like, and guess what happened now? So my family does this has the same thing. There was the other day I was reading lessons <laughs> in chemistry and I was laughing out loud. And my daughter's like, what's so funny? And I was like, yeah, what this happened? book, this book, you yeah. gotta read this book. Yeah. Wait, what's the name of it? Lessons in, lessons in chemistry. I assume it's not a chemistry text. 
<laughs> no, no, it's a it's it's a wonderful book. It, it's You're like it's, hydrogen reacts like that. Are you kidding me? No, it's, so I, I don't want to <laughs> get too far down the rabbit hole about what it's about. But it's basically about a woman who's a chemist who becomes an, a TV host for a cooking program. Oh, wait, is it fiction? It's fiction. Oh, I can't wait to find it. Yes, I, I will find it. Fantastic. Fantastic. But it was the same kind of thing. I kept laughing out loud. Um, yeah. And, and then when someone says, what's why. so funny, like you have to explain the whole book to you tell do. them why it's funny. So you do, or you Be have careful. to read a certain amount of it. Exactly. Aloud. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, I love And know what happens to proteins when you apply heat to them. That's right. That's right. very important. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Cooking is chemistry, right? It is. So, yeah. You know, when Chad and I first met, I did all of the cooking. And everyone always told me I was such a great cook. And everyone loved my food except Chad. And one of our friends once said, Chad has the palate of a five-year-old. And it really got under his skin. And, and now went, I own oh, a no. sous vide machine. Yeah, it got under his skin. Yeah. He's an amazing cook. I would say he's more of a chef. So he got, I think I had a prescription or subscription let's get this right to cooks illustrated which is really Ooh. about the chemistry of cooking and chad yeah. was like reading all about how food reacts and why flavors work and anyway he so he started doing all of the cooking and then i stumbled across like harold mcgee who i think is literally a chemist right so yeah similar sorts of things right it's yeah it's true it, it is interesting and i think it kind of for me i, I love to bake Mm. And I just that's chemistry for it sure It is totally chemistry. And why, you know, baking soda works differently than baking powder, like all of that is it's tr it's really interesting. And <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. I know I'm a nerd, though. <laughs> no, I totally agree. I just think it's funny that we're like, you're, you're talking to a person who toasted, I forget which one it was either baking soda or baking powder to create a particular reaction to using my ramen noodles. Right. No way. Yeah. <laughs> Did it Chad. work? Yeah, it worked. Oh, good. oh yeah. Well, right. he learned it from David Chang, so of course it worked. Uh, cool. But it was a lot of hand-cutting noodles, too. So, right. I mean, it worked and it didn't work. We'd rather just order from Gold Belly. I can't cut a straight <laughs> line to save my soul. <laughs> it, it was very good, though. I will I will tell our, our listeners. That yeah, it took like three days to make ramen. Yeah. Like that, not, ha not happening again. There were a lot of parts. <laughs> that was a tricky one because you can actually buy ramen for like a dollar. <laughs> well, okay, but you can Easy. Yeah, yeah. You can, and there, I'm going to say it, folks. There's no good ramen in San Diego. There's actually one place near you. It's in Mission Hills. It's called Isakaya Masa. They have decent ramen. Oh, but really? all these ramen houses we have are mostly not good. Nah, they're pretty bad. Mm. You go to New York to get good ramen. Oh my gosh, right? Mm -hmm. Go to New York to get everything. That's right. Everything good, except for good writers, because we have an amazing writing community ah, here in San Diego. We do, we do. Bringing it back. And my character's husband, Kate's husband, brings something back from New York that she is not happy about. So this is true. Go. New York is not always good. <laughs> Although I do love New York. Um, so I wanted to ask you, I mean, you have this history of words I can't pronounce in psychology. How long? Did you know you wanted to be a writer? Did you did you always want to be a writer? Like, how did how did the path bring you to psychology and then back to writing? Or did you even come back to writing? You know, it's interesting. I I was just um, contemplating a question similar to this for a written interview, and I think 
So I grew up in a family where books and storytelling were super important and kind of fundamental to our family. We would, every night at dinner, uh, we each got, I had four brothers and sisters, so there's five of us, and we had foster children often. And every night at dinner, all of the kids got three minutes to share the most important or interesting thing that happened to you that day. Hmm. And so we all learned to be sort of quick, short, like short storytellers, and also to be good audience, because <laughs> you had to listen to everybody else's stories. And so I, and, and we read all the time, all the time. My dad used to read to us at dinner from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We did family devotions from a book called Little Visits with God, and we all read aloud. So reading was, and reading aloud, and sharing words was a super, was just a part of my life from the very beginning. And I kept a diary like every little girl with a, a pink one with a little lock um, because, <laughs> because my secrets were so important. Well, and there were five plus kids that might get into that lock. Right. Easily afforded lock. (laughs) Yeah. And I would hide it under pillows in the closet. And and then I transferred that to writing in moleskines. And I just, I did that for years and years and years. I've always been somebody who journaled a lot. Um, Sometimes I would read a poem and add it to my journal simply because the words were so moving, things like that. And so I was always writing, but I wasn't writing something. And I put something in air quotes. It, it wasn't like I was creating something that was to be shared with others. And it really wasn't until my kids went off to school, to college, that I had the time to stop and make the decision about whether I wanted to try to write, again, air quotes, something. Mm. And I took a couple of writing classes, one of which was the writing class that I took with Marnie Friedman at UCSD Extension. And suddenly I wanted to try. And Mm. I started out writing short stories and then um, was going to write a memoir about that experience of motherhood and the shifting nature of what mother means when your mother, when my own mother was, I was losing my own mother, even though she was right in front of me. And my stepdaughter had lost her mother and I was becoming a stepmother and trying to be a mother and trying to mix all of those in my life. And I thought that that would be a really interesting theme for a memoir. So I sat down to try to write that and got part of the way through it and realized I was too close to the material still. I was living it still. Right. And it was just too hard for me to be objective about what was happening and it came off as sort of pitiful at times, angry at times, but I didn't have that, that, that space to um, step back and make it more of a universal story. It was still very personal. Mm-hmm. And so I took a break from that and um, started writing Blurred Fates, which by the way, had about 16 titles before we landed on Blurred Fates. Mm-hmm. Um, but I started writing the book that would become Blurred Fates. Sure. So yeah. that was my journey to becoming a writer. It wasn't really, I mean, I wrote in college. And um, the other story that I like to tell is that I had a professor in college. I wrote a dystopic short story for a class that I was taking pass-fail. And the option at the end, I was taking it with a, a really good friend of mine who was a math major. And she had to take a literature course and she didn't want to take it alone. So I said, oh, I'll take a class with you and I'll take it pass-fail. 
So we took this utopia as an imaginary world's class. And one of the options instead of the final was to write a short story. So I wrote a dystopic short story about a girl named Dorothy who lives under the ground in a post uh, apocalyptic world. And they're waiting for earth to become healthy enough to come up above ground. And um, all the communities are colored like the rainbow. So as they live under the rainbow, her name is Dorothy. I'm just, mm. you can see where this is going. I was <laughs> in my own defense. I was 20 at the time. Um, but <laughs> do you still have a copy of it? No, I don't. And I wish I did oh, because at the end, when I got the paperback, the professor had written on it. This was the easiest passing grade I've ever given. I'm, I hope you don't mind. I'm keeping a copy of this so that when you become a famous writer, I can give it to the college for their archives. Oh my gosh. And wow. so I, I remember keeping that paper for a long time. And whenever I was feeling kind of down about myself, I would pull it out and be like, mm. you know, you've got some potential to do something someday. You can do this. Yeah. You can do something someday. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it was very vague. Like mm. I said, it was something in parenth- something in quotes. I didn't know what it was going to be. Mm. And so, yeah. So that's my story to becoming a writer. It's that's... been sort of percolating all of my life. But yeah. Um, you know, yeah. one of the things about, you know, we've mentioned Marnie Friedman a couple times and our listeners know that <clears throat> she's the co-founder of the San Diego Writers Festival, but she's also a writing coach. And I think mm-hmm. her, her greatest superpower is giving people courage to write because I didn't know I was going to write my memoir until Marnie sort of tricked me into it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. She, she has this way of like encouraging and guiding people to write and, you know, we've talked about the, the community of San Diego, the writing community here. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And there's so many organizations where if you, dear listener, if you have a story, if you've always wanted to be a writer, maybe this is the time that you take mm-hmm. a class. You know, maybe you go to Marnie Friedman's website. It's MarnieFriedman.com. Or maybe you go to Anastasia's website and watch some of her videos where she does these performances for So Say We All. Because there's something that happens when you come out of the dark, you know, because as writers, like we, we're alone in the dark. We're all, it's insulary, right? But as soon as you come out and you find this community that they're just as afraid of failure as you are, right? Mm-hmm. And if we can like support each other and lift each other, beautiful things happen. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've taken to saying in the last couple of months is that writing builds community and communities build writers. And I think that that for me has been, it's this mutual Mm win-win, you know, you get to be part of something bigger than yourself and all of that helps to, to make you stronger so that you start, that you can believe in yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's it's really been for me it's been a marvelous experience the last few years to be to be able to be part of this 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 amazing diverse uh, growing and sometimes challenging you know sometimes I've I've learned a lot when someone says to me you know questions what I've written yeah. Um, I remember one of the first questions that Marnie asked everyone 
when we were doing our first you know, class back at UCSD Extension was, we would talk about the book and then she'd go, but what's it about? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a hard question, go, well, right? Didn't I just tell you? And she'd say, no, no, you really didn't. You didn't you know, tell me what it's about. <laughs> I, I have to tell you something funny. So Twitter, we all know what Twitter is. It's crazy. There was this comment from this guy who doesn't even have that many followers. And he said, why do people always have to ask me what my book is about? Why can't they ask me what the vibe is? Ooh. And I was stunned by how many other people jumped in and said, yeah, yeah, we shouldn't have to say what our book is about. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell is happening here, people? It's not a hookah lounge, for God's sake. I need to know what the book is about. But there's this fear, right? <laughs> of well, like having... It, yeah. Well, it's, but it's also, it's one of those things where I understand wanting to know what a book's about so that you can make a, a decision about yeah. whether it's something you want to read, right? Do I want to take this journey? Do Is I it worth my time? Journey? Exactly. Right. But I do and, think that as a writer, sometimes it feels paralyzing because mm-hmm, it feels mm-hmm. like it's about so many things to us. We yeah. we've put yeah. our life blood into it, our tears and our blood and our sweat and all of that. Mm-hmm. And so to t- try to distill it down to something short feels like you're giving it short shrift. Like you're not, you're not able to tell everything. And so it feels somehow like you can never fully express it. Yeah. I don't know. Your back cover copy is very good. I'm going to read it. Okay. Kate, Kate Whittier has it all. A loving, even keeled husband two great kids. And that's very revealing, the even keeled part, right? That tells us a little bit about who Kate is and what she's looking for. But anyway, two great kids and a beautiful home in Southern California. But Kate is living a lie. In a desperate attempt to create the safe, happy family she never had, she has been hiding secrets for decades. Things she's convinced make her unworthy of her well-born husband, Jacob, and the privileged life he has provided. It goes on a little bit, but like, that's a hook. I'm like, oh, okay. So you've told us so much about who this character is with so few words. There's some mystery. There's intrigue. Talk to us about the process of writing your back cover copy. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the oh painful my process. Goodness. So the, I think two of the hardest things for me personally to write were the synopsis when I was trying to put together a three-page synopsis and a one-page synopsis, and then writing this back cover copy. And just so writers out there know, this is a process that continued for me until the day before it was due. And when (laughs) I I say the day before it was due, the the back cover copy that's on my final book was not the same as the one on the ARC, which is the advanced reader copy. Um, I realized that I was giving away too much Mm. and most writers do that yeah Yeah. and so I cut it down but um but that was and I'm not exaggerating it was like I'm I was in a cab in New York coming home (laughs) the back cover copy was due and I was editing it in my car on my phone (laughs) saying like please give me two more minutes two more minutes um so it's a hard thing to do and I think that there is this uh First of all, you have to be understand the the value of each word on something like this. Mm-hmm. So when you pointed out the even keeled or the well born, like I'm trying to convey something about her husband with one word, 
or two yeah. words. Yeah. And yeah. when it comes to cover copy, it each word matters. Yeah. So it's almost like writing poetry in a way, like you're trying to tell a story in as few words as possible, but to give enough background that they that somebody feels like they understand the world, the old world, and then to give enough information about how that old world is going to be changed without giving away too much so that the person goes, oh, it's, it's sort of like when you go to see a movie premiere and at the end, when you go to see the movie, you realize that you saw all the good bits when you saw the premiere. <laughs> or, or the trailer. You mean the trailer. Oh, yeah, the trailer. Sorry, yeah, yeah. the trailer. When you see the trailer and you're like, wow, that looks great. And then you go see the movie and you're like, yeah, I could have just actually. seen yeah. the trailer. Like that would have been enough. <laughs> um, so you don't want your back cover copy to be like a trailer in that sense. Um, but it is important like a trailer in that it's got to it's got to convince somebody to pick that book up and hopefully open it and read the first few pages. Because right. yeah. I think it was in a conversation with you, Jennifer, where you said that the three steps most buyers go through is they look at the cover, it intrigues them, they pick it up, they read the back copy. Mm-hmm. If the back copy intrigues them, they might flip it open and read the first few pages. And that's when they decide what they're yeah. going to do. That's right. And so it's really important. It's an important part of the book. And yeah, it took me Oh my goodness. I can't, I couldn't even tell you how many drafts it was because it was that many drafts, like probably, <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating, probably hundreds. Yeah. With a file name, back cover, copy, final, back cover, final, back final. cover copy, final, final, <laughs> final, final, final. Yeah. I yeah. mean it this time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I final, no, I really final, mean final. It. I mean it this time, final. Um, <laughs> no, really. <laughs> no, really. Version no, really. Three. Final. <laughs> oh my gosh. So true. Anastasia. Yeah. What are you working on now? What can we expect from you next? So my second book is called Capture the Light. It is a book about two young people who they're a a young woman who's 18, just turned 18, and a young man who's 25 who meet and fall in love in a psychiatric inpatient facility. Hmm. And they decide to escape actually since they're about they're voluntarily they just can walk out but they walk out without medical but it feels like clearance. an escape <laughs> well it's without medical clearance so they are they actually leave without without approval got it they leave all of their devices behind and they set off on a cross-country odyssey to try to recreate uh an image of half dome under mm. a moon um that's mm. going to be rising in the sky four days later. And they have to get from New York to Yosemite in four days. days. And as they're traveling cross country, um, the the male character has bipolar disorder and he does not like to take medication. And as he's driving through the night, he starts to go off the rails and the girl calls her mother and the two mothers try to find them before everything falls apart. So it's a parallel journey with the two young people driving and the moms flying and driving and trying to find them before. When when can we expect? That book book will be out in the spring of 2024. Okay. All right. Well, for now, folks, I highly recommend Blurred Fates, a novel by Anastasia Zadek. Anastasia, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a treat, really. Well, I just, 
I'm so excited for you. I'm so excited for this book. The official pub date is August 2nd. Is that correct? That is correct. August 2nd. And folks, you can get it anywhere books are sold. We love supporting local. Warwick's carries this book. And in fact, you have an event happening at Warwick's, but it's sold out. It is. It's sold out on Wednesday evening. Mm -hmm. But there will be another live event with uh, Tracy Jones, who is the... uh, host for the San Diego Writers Festival and Warwick's Book Club. Mm-hmm. And that will that event is going to be on August 23rd Okay, at Coronado Public Library. Well, and listeners, you can learn more about Anastasia Zadike and all of her events, everything coming up so you can support her and this wonderful book, Blurred Fates, at AnastasiaZadike.com. And that's Z-A-D-E-I-K. AnastasiaZadike.com. Follow her on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Anastasia Zadike. This has been another episode of The Premise. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow us at ThePremisePod.com. Go to SanDiegoWritersFestival.com to listen to other episodes. Plus, you can subscribe and rate The Premise wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Anastasia. Thank you. All right, folks, until next time, goodbye. Hey, folks, this is Jennifer. And as you know, The Premise is the official podcast of the San Diego Writers Festival, which, by the way, is happening this October, October 8th, in fact, 2022. It's going live and in person. Yeah, live and in person. I'm really, really excited. We, um... We have so many exciting things happening, so many exciting speakers. They're coming in from all over, and we want you to be there. So Coronado Public Library, the fourth annual San Diego Writers Festival. SanDiegoWritersFestival.com. You can subscribe to learn more about our programming and get on the list to win free books and all kinds of cool stuff happening. So SanDiegoWritersFestival.com. Sure. <laughs>